listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Is America headed for an economic revolution? A recent speech by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan seemed to signal things are about to change, with a move away from bipartisan faith in globalisation, deregulation and the wisdom of markets. To find out more, I'm joined now by Keith to break it all down. Keith, explain to us first what the Washington Consensus is. Yeah, so the Washington Consensus is a phrase coined in the 1980s and relates to this well, basically globalisation. So it's about countries lowering their trading barriers and being far more integrated into the global economy and the use of long supply chains, which has really given us a great boost in our standard of living. The problem is that not everybody has benefited equally. So in this Australian example, we have lost much of our manufacturing in terms of clothing because it's cheaper and easier to import stuff from India, Bangladesh, China. Mm. So there has been a lot of progress made, a lot of wealth generated, but it hasn't been easily spread around. Now, the phrase Washington consensus actually relates the way in which the major driving forces for this new era of globalisation have been based in Washington. So it's the US government, no matter who was in power, the US government, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. And so this phrase called the Washington Consensus was invented at that point. I've talked also about the Beijing Consensus, which is that you keep your nose clean, you keep out of politics and just leave everything to the government. That's an alternative consensus approach. What we're now looking at is the way that the Americans perhaps are moving away from bringing great believers in globalisation. Globalisation has brought, as I say, many benefits but there have also been a large number of losers. Some of those losers made their views clear back in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. Mm. In Great Britain, of course, you had the vote to leave the European Union, and you've got the rise of nationalist politicians in a lot of Western countries who are exploiting the fear that some people have that they're losing out in this new era. So, yes, a lot of wealth has been generated, and so you and I are able to buy, for example, cheaper clothes, but there are also people who've lost their jobs. And this is the reaction to that move. And so what we're seeing now are tentative steps in the US and elsewhere towards trying to onshore, to use the jargon, or friendly shore manufacturing. In other words, bring the manufacturing back into the United States. This was a a process that began under Donald Trump, who was very antagonistic to foreigners, Mm. certainly didn't like China, but didn't really have specific policies for reindustrializing America. President Biden is also following that same path. He's maintained hostility towards China. And of course, there's speculation that we're now on a collision course with China. Uh, but what he's also done is to introduce new pieces of legislation, like the CHIPS Act, which is designed to bring the manufacturing of microchips back into the United States. Sometimes they've been designed there. If you look at an Apple product, for example, 
designed in the United States, but in fact, the bulk of the work is done overseas in China, which in turn provides other employment in Vietnam and et cetera. So under one piece of legislation, CHIPS Act, they want to bring chip manufacturing back in because clearly that's a point of vulnerability for the United States that if it were on a collision course with China, the Chinese are controlling the chips Mm. or may be able to block access to the United States getting the chips from Taiwan. So that's one move in the Biden administration. A second one has been the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been the creation of incentives through the tax system to more electronic vehicles, EVs. Now, this has earned the hostility of a traditional Democrat Party support, which is the auto unions in Detroit, who can see that, yes, people were still driving cars, but they won't be petrol-driven, which is what they're designed Mm. to look after. New plants are opening up outside of traditional Motown, Motortown, down in the southern states, and recruiting different types of workers. There is a huge economic revolution underway at the moment in the US. The US pioneered globalisation after World War II when it was running so much of the global economy. It is now no longer in such a powerful situation, but it has still got some uh, power that it can exert over global economics. And I think that we've just got to look out for the fact that we've got a whole new era opening up. Now, if you look at Australia's case, we began under Gough Whitlam very tentatively to start allowing in more foreign goods, manufacturing. The rag trade is always my favourite example. So, you know, when I arrived in this country 50 years ago, there was a very limited supply of men's suits and they were all made in Australia. Mm. Now you have a vast diversity of, of men's clothing, but most of those suits are made overseas. Right. That process began under Whitlam, really gathered momentum under the Keating and Hawke governments, and it just simply increased. And if you look back at the economic history of that era, it's very difficult to work out when there was a change of government from Fraser to Howard, from Howard to Labor, from Labor back to the Conservatives. <laughs> you know, it all just sort of blends in. Yes. Because when it comes to economic policy, it's all broadly the same. Mm. So the value of this article, which has appeared in The Atlantic, the new Washington consensus, is that it means, at least for Australian readers, we've got to be aware that a new era is opening up and uh, that we may be doing more manufacturing onshore. And this, of course, has been hastened by the tragedy of COVID, Mm. that we suddenly realised how fragile supply chains were. You know, the promise of globalisation is that you could always get goods very quickly they could be flown in, et cetera, very easily. But then COVID disrupted all of that. And so we've had all these shortages. In fact, there's still, in the pharmaceutical industry, there are still shortages. Yeah, yeah, yeah heaps of medications. Um, and so there is now a push to bring all this back on shore. And this means that there's now talk about industrial policy, which as a phrase has not been used since the end of World War II. So industrial policy is where the government gets involved in trying to run the economy, in trying to pick winners. If you look at American history, the US government was successful in picking the right winners, such as the the construction of the internet. So the internet was designed originally with with email service as a way of enabling US defence installations to communicate quickly with each other if there were a surprise 
Soviet attack. This is back in the 50s and 60s. The academics who produced it said, well, look, we'd like to get access to that as well. And we'll, instead of linking up U.S. military facilities, we'd like to link up universities. Mm-hmm. So in the late 80s, then you get the development then of this vast, well, what we now call the internet, which then enables people to communicate very easily. But that, you know, we take that for granted as a civilian activity. Yeah. But it's originally got a military purpose behind it. Mm. So that's a good example of industrial policy because it's spilled over from the military sector into the civilian sector. And we can't live without the network that was invented <laughs> originally to assist the U.S. defense establishment in the event of a surprise Soviet nuclear attack. Mm. So it's, it's really interesting how industrial policy is now beginning to move back into the center of discussion. And it means that politicians are going to have to start earning their living mm. because they're going to have to be called on to make these big decisions about, you know, what industries should we support? How much should we support it by? This is an interesting revolution because when globalization began and the rediscovery of the market system, it meant the politician could simply say, well, we're leaving it all to the market. Yeah. That era is coming to an end now. Mm. The market can't be relied upon. Yeah. And so we've got to go back to more human intervention. It's interesting because I did notice this conversation, this topic, a lot during Donald Trump's presidency uh, and campaign, and I'm sure it'll come up again. And I suppose to the average citizen who maybe doesn't understand the deeper implications, I suppose, of of how things have worked up until this point is that they see things being made in their country and they go, well, of course. Are there any downsides to having more manufacturing happening and industrial revolution in our own countries as opposed to importing things from overseas? Yes, there is a great risk, risk of corruption. Right. You know, you let politicians near a pocket of money and, you know, who knows what they get involved in. Mm. And we see that tragically in the United States. So let's go back to the era previously when the United States had an industrial policy, which was the 1930s. So we get the Wall Street crash in the late 1920s. And then the Roosevelt administration comes to power in 1932. And then bit by bit becomes more and more important in the US economy and starts to intervene more and more in the economy. And so, for example, it gets involved in maintaining the price of tobacco. Tobacco had grown in a number of American states, mm-hmm. very important in politics. Yep. And so you get people like John Wayne, who perhaps didn't make too much money from some of his movies, but he got a regular source of money from the US government because he had bought land suitable for the cultivation of tobacco, but never grew anything on it mm-hmm. because the US government was subsidizing the non-growing of tobacco as a way of keeping the prices up. <laughs> Right. This is the risk you run. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm in favour of industrial policy. I want to see more manufacturing done back on shore, but you're right to highlight some of the risks that we could be running into because we know we've run into them in the past. If you look at the West Australian experience in the 1980s, you had a WA Inc., mm-hmm. very close connections between state government politicians and local business people like Alan Bond, and look at how the economy got distorted to assist the financial interests of the big companies. Mm. So it can be made to work. The Japanese have shown that. But when we get our hands on it, as we did in Australia, it can often turn out to be a disaster. (laughs) 
You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda, and today we're discussing whether the US is headed towards an economic revolution. Now, let's talk about the upcoming election uh, in the US. Yeah. And next year, it's really going to ramp up. They go to the polls in November, and then a new president or the same president (laughs) will be uh, in the White House come January. What role will the election play in the steps forward, I suppose, to this new normal? Well, Donald Trump has really helped set the path for this new idea of economic nationalism. As I say, he was very strong on the rhetoric, but not very clear on the policies. Mm. His economic policies were all over the place because he originally attracted supporters because of his hostility towards bankers and yet brought bankers into his government. Mm. And so they sort of stymied some of the reforms that a lot of us were hoping he would introduce. Yeah. So if if Trump is re-elected as president, then I think we will certainly again see more economic chaos, but the same tone, anti-Chinese, wary about globalisation and plenty of support for American businesses. Remember, Donald Trump promised to revive the coal industry. He was not able to do so. Coal industry is now a declining industry. There is still a need for coal, but he certainly wasn't be able to turn it around and put it back into the glory days that we had with coal. Mm. The market is just against it. So that is a, um, a limitation on what Trump would like to do because clearly the coal miners in West Virginia were of great assistance to him and in other underprivileged communities. If Biden is re-elected or if you get a, another Democrat, my guess is that you will still have a government which is hostile towards China and will seek to bring back more manufacturing back to the United States because clearly it's a winner. It enjoys a lot of public support. Mm. What will the impacts of this new approach be on the rest of the world? And I'm particularly interested to hear your perspective on China and India, who, as you've mentioned, are some of the biggest exporters to the Western world. How will that impact them? Well, I think in the case of China, China has clearly got a lot of economic problems at the moment. And so China will certainly have difficulty coping with this new American approach. I think that people will still be buying goods from China, but they will do so with a greater sense of wariness. As as you see that here in Australia, remember when we stood up to China over the COVID issue, perhaps a little unwisely, we should have worked with European partners, but um, Australia went out on a limb, very critical of China over COVID. China then suddenly decided to block supplies of certain items. Didn't touch iron ore, Mm. didn't touch coal, but they did go after the red wine and, you know, the other items which they could buy in in other countries. And it's interesting to note that that bullying has failed Mm. and China's recognised that and China is now back importing goods from Australia. But the damage has been done. You know, suddenly people are saying, oh, you can't trust the Chinese. So I think that China has actually shot itself in the foot by trying to bully Australia. Australians are now looking for alternative markets. In the case of India, India, as you say, is also a major exporter. And we just have to wait and see whether India can develop alternative trade links and prove itself to be a reliable trading partner with Australia. So far it has. My argument is always that Australia needs to learn more about India. There's more to our relationship than just cricket, curry and the Commonwealth. (laughs) And uh, 
we need to become much better informed about China, about India. And, of course, the future is with India. Mm. India now has more people than China. Yep. And much younger. Yes, that's the And key. it's English-speaking. Yeah. You know, a bit of a rickety democracy, but at least it is a democracy. That's also, by the way, one of the problems with globalisation, that the expectation was back in the 1980s that as China became more integrated into the global economy, as its citizens became richer, so like elsewhere in Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Philippines, Indonesia, as people get richer, so they want to have more of a say in how their country is being governed. Those Asian countries, which I've just listed, are now flourishing democracies. Whereas China has not gone down that path. It's been a failure from that point of view. China still remains centrally controlled dictatorship. That's been a, a failure of the promise of globalisation. And again, there are people who would have supported globalisation in the hope that China would become a democracy. Well, they must be feeling very disappointed that that has not come about. Economic growth has not opened up China to the rest of the world. And perhaps there are some flaws within globalisation. Well, that was going to be my next question. Was globalisation and pursuing it a mistake? I don't think it was a mistake, but you'd, you'd have to say that, you know, it's like all economic theories, that you get progress being made and then it stalls, it goes off the rails a bit. Clearly, we have benefited a lot from globalisation, which is means that you get the movement, easy movement, of goods around the world. It's also an easy movement of some people around the world. So if you've got a nursing degree, for example, you can work anywhere in the world. Mm. Or if you've got a background in STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, you can work anywhere in the world. <laughs> if you go to the Republic of Ireland, you see Australian health system trying to recruit the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet at the same time, you've got the Irish trying to recruit Australians. Yep. So... You know, there is this global shortage of labour, talented labour, mm. and globalisation has enabled people to move around. And overall, I think a number of people have benefited from it. The problem is the wealth has not been evenly distributed and you've had pockets of poverty. We see that not so much in Australia, but certainly in a place like the United Kingdom. And they are the people who voted for Brexit. Ironically, it's done them even more harm because they're not getting any subsidies from the European Union now, but they are the people who said, let's just get the foreigners out of the country. Yeah. And so there has there was a problem with globalisation that we didn't ensure that everybody benefited from it at the same time. The risk now with developing industrial policies, bringing manufacturing back on shore, is that we'll end up favouring certain companies over others and there may be scope for corruption. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be one of those issues that I'm sure we'll see unfold in the coming years. Thanks for uh, explaining it all to us, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic.